0: So, where would you like to pick this up? What needs to be further explored, or shared, or commented on?
1: What about drugs?
0: What about drugs?
1: Well, I found myself thinking while you just... You said something like, to the effect of... uh, Looking for substances to, to make yourself happy or something um, is looking in the wrong place or it will cloud your mind. And I've sort of found in my experience that certain drugs at certain times with certain intentions have actually really helped me open my mind and I feel like one of the reasons I'm so, as like, that I'm as centered and as aware as I am is because of some of those experiences.
0: I don't know what you have to say about that. So I, I certainly have talked to lots of people who've shared that same experience. Yeah. My own personal experience was I I was so um not sure what the right word was. I couldn't do drugs because my sensory system was so sensitive. I just couldn't I couldn't mm-hmm. I couldn't cope. I would walk into a room of people getting high and I would be stoned within five minutes. You know, totally useless, you know. So I don't have the personal experience of that. And I can appreciate, you know, that there's certainly ways in which drugs and substances can open up the possibility and have an understanding of things. I think the challenge is, this is the integration. Because what can happen with a kind of mind-altering substance can be an opening into something that something is actually not integrated. And that's the difference between what happens with drugs and what happens with meditation. Uh, I mean, it's not absolutely black and white. People can get blasted with meditation as well and not be able to integrate experiences as well. So it's not as if there's a like a categorical no around the whole thing. I think what it is is just a sense of... Um, one is how one's using it and what effect it has and how one is able to integrate the insights that one has from that in one's um, daily life. I think when there's an issue of addiction, you're talking about something totally different. And also with certain substances, no matter... The level of lack of discernment that's present is so... um, makes it so much easier to make um, unskillful choices in so many other areas that even though there can be windows of opening that come as a result of that, you know, it's like one needs to really look out for the the kind of, you know, the consequences. So, you know, I certainly have friends who've who've done, um, you know, LSD trips or mushroom trips or other kinds of hallucinogenic trips and they've done it in a very sacred way with um set it up with people to support it in a way that um, it was held and it was then um, and I've, I've heard them talk about that in ways that they found very beneficial Thank you. Um,
1: I don't know. <laughs> 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 the, I found it interesting uh, the four things you articulated about um, right speech. And one of them was uh, coarseness. And I wonder if you could elaborate on that. I don't really know what you mean by that. Harsh. It should have been harsh, not coarse.
0: Harsh. Yeah. So, do you mean harmful? Uh, harsh speech is, is swearing at somebody. You know, it's it's not skillful. It's not um, kind. It's not gentle. You know, it's so screaming at somebody would be harsh speech. You know, cursing somebody would be harsh speech. Those are kinds of examples of harsh speech. Yes. So you, know, you can say things which are very pointed and very difficult. You can say it in a way which is not harsh,
1: yeah. with a with a positive intention.
0: Yeah. So interestingly enough, in the in the monastic discipline, the whole area around speech takes up the most um, time, space, pages, kind of references, and there's all kinds of criteria for because, like, giving feedback and receiving feedback is a basic. Um, it's essential you know you know a person is considered spiritually dead if you can if if they're not open to hearing feedback and yet obviously this is not an easy topic you know and you know you, you can really make big mistakes doing that so there's all kinds of things to reflect on before one's in a position to give feedback and there's all kinds of things to reflect on when you're in the position of receiving feedback in order to help stay grounded and to make good use of it in a, and not to just fly off the handle with a reactivity around what it is that you're doing. And my experience in the community has been that, wow, you know, it has been phenomenally difficult to learn what we needed to learn in order to be able to do this in a way which was actually skillful. Uh, you know, my experience living with, with women, with celibate women, is, is that our perceptivity is so sharp sometimes it is absolutely mind boggling. But what we took us decades to learn was how to balance our our perceptiveness with what was needed in order to share what it was that we saw in a way that was actually useful. I've
2: experienced that a little bit <laughs> any more on the topic of um, sort of healthy sexuality? You sort of touched on the the don'ts, and you mentioned, like, the respect and things like that on the, on the do side of the list, but I don't know. I mean, from your perspective, that might be a little difficult, but um, I don't know. Just in describing, I feel like in my experience, spent a lot of time learning what doesn't work for me and what doesn't feel good, what doesn't jive with my being and where I want to be, and I'm having a hard time even imagining what it is that I want that kind of love relationship to look like and be like, and, and in terms of uh, to the, the Buddha's book on healthy, what is that? Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I think if we step back a couple steps, it might be easier to talk about it that way, you know? So, you know, actually learning how to sit in one's own posture in a way where there's a sense of balance and ease and a sense of fluidity is not a simple thing, okay? It it takes a lot because there's will and there's a sense of effort and there's a sense of how it should be. There's all kinds of things that are happening just sitting here, okay? Now, sitting here is not as potent... (laughs) And yet, the reason why it's helpful to learn how to sit here with balance is because that sense of balance and flow and internal space is then something that we bring to every part of our life. So if we don't have a sense of what that is, to sit here with a sense of ease and well-being, a sense of alignment, a sense of feeling relaxed, yet upright, yeah then it's hard to bring that to every other part of our life. Okay. So it's not as if what we do is we imagine balance and then we superimpose our imagined idea onto other aspects of our life. It doesn't work that way. What it is is we embody balance and then we bring that embodied sense of balance to the other aspects of our life. And so what is needed to be in an embodied sense of balance is to become highly sensitized to imbalance so that we begin to see the contrast and to be able to negotiate the feeling tones the heat, the texture, the tightness, the contraction, and oftentimes it's very subtle, okay? So that our language is a language of sensation and learning how to read the language of sensation in order to allow the greatest sense of ease and well-being and flow and space to be something that we sit here as an embodied experience. And then when we sit here with that, then we can see, well, when is that present when I'm eating, or when I'm talking to somebody or when I'm taking a shower and when is it absent you know? and so then we can begin to widen the circle of bringing that into greater aspects of what our life would be and include that in intimacy and relationships okay? so when there's um, that sense of ease and well-being one has a sense of well, what feels right what doesn't feel right And one moves towards what feels right, which is a relaxed sense of what feels right rather than a grasping sense of what feels right. Mm -hmm. So one's not grasping at an idea of what balance should be. One is relaxing into it and allowing that to flow through. And then one brings that to the various aspects of one's lives. And, you know, for some of us, there's different aspects which are challenging, you know? And so, you know, that sense of what would balance be like in relationship to food? What that sense of fluid, flow, clarity, ease, be. And that's from there that I think one has a better sense. Does that help?
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have time to talk a little bit more about useless speech?
0: Sure. I mean, we can spend as much time as we want. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that one seems a lot less clear-cut
2: than other kinds. starts being you
0: know not right well again you know this is a reflection it's not meant as a commandment and so there's large areas of grey you know in terms of what that what that what that means for different people um useless speech is talking about things which are um completely not essential so uh And and then one needs to balance that with what is actually happening, which is the useless speech as a social lubricant in order for people to feel comfortable with each other. You know, so, you know, I, I was a kind of, um, I'm not sure what the right word was, a, an introvert who found this kind of chit-chat absolutely intolerable. I mean, for me, it was like death.
2: You know, I hated
0: it. But after many years living in the monastery, I learned that it actually serves a very useful function. Not everybody relates to being intense immediately, you know, after two sentences, you know, and to get down to, you know, whatever the absolute core issue is. It's like you need to have some something, of something that just holds it. And often that is in a social context. We're talking about trivia. It's not about anything really meaningful or the rest of that. So using speech that way, chit-chat, in order to kind of create a, a field of trust, there's an intention of using it that way. When one speaks incessantly about stuff which is totally not helpful because one can't tolerate being quiet, <laughs> then that's another reflection. And, you know, one is, it's helpful to look at that. I, there's a lovely story about Marshall Rosenberg. I love this story. Marshall was going out to dinner, and there was going to be an aunt there. And he told his wife that at the dinner, on the way in the car, he said, you know, we're never going to be invited again. And so his wife said to him, well, what are you planning on saying? And he said, I don't know, but I'm sure we're never going to be invited again. Because he'd made a commitment that he didn't want to stay engaged in conversation that was useless. Okay. And he didn't yet have much skill on how to negotiate that kind of tricky area of staying clear with one's own congruence and yet interact with another person where you're not just being rude. So Ant was doing what Ant does, where she starts a story and then she can't stop it. So it just goes on and 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 on. And Marshall said, are you interested in what you're talking about?
2: <laughs>
0: and she stopped and she wasn't interested in what she was talking about and, the, and and so later in the conversation they checked in and she was actually relieved mm-hmm. because she had a pattern of speaking and she couldn't stop it she had no way of stopping it herself and so that question even though it was a a little bit in your face. You know, I think you could probably find ways of doing that in a way which is a little bit um, gentler. Um, it was the beginning. He was learning how to do something he didn't yet have the skills for, and so that was his first try. Do you
2: have any more
3: suggestions on
0: ways of putting it Then how he it out? Not as immediately. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, practice for the opposite end of the table. I, I tend to talk a lot. Um, it's not because I'm comfortable with silence, but I enjoy conversation, but I know sometimes it can be exhausting. You know, so how does that practice start when you recognize that as a pattern so that you don't have to
0: Well, I I think you've already made several significant steps in that direction, which is one is there's a recognition that there's a, uh, you know, what is an inclination for you, which is to talk a lot. But also there's a register that sometimes for other people it's more than what they can handle. And so there's, there's already the movement towards empathy with what's actually happening for the other person on the receiving end. And that's what's needed is for your own need to be in in relationship with empathy for how it is for the other person. Yeah. And I mean, ultimately, you're not responsible for what's happening for the other person. But what we each can do is learn how to be um, attentive to what effect we are having and learn how to read those signals, you know. You know, one of the things I wanted to talk about a little bit tonight is I'm reading a book called Trauma from the Eyes of a Child, which is an absolutely brilliant book. Peter Levine, do you know him? You know him. Well, you know, Peter Levine has done some really powerful work on trauma. And, you know, um, his basis is, is that trauma is a physiological response. And if it's not resolved completely, during the incident, which was traumatic, it gets actually stuck in your physiological body and then ends up causing various different problems afterwards. Some of them are physical, some of them are psychological, some of them are, um, anyway, many different manifestations of problems. And what was interesting to me was is, is that, you know, he was saying that it's extremely common that people who have um, unresolved trauma... Use addiction as a self-medication for their unresolved trauma. So there's, you know, issues around addiction, and there's also issues around anger. There's also issues around sexuality, and it's very common that what can happen is is that unresolved trauma can be the precipitating cause for all of that. And so, if you are trying to deal with those things by themselves independently, It's not going to have the same kind of depth as if you understand actually what it's related to and how it's connected to something deeper. And so, you know, that's another whole area that happened in living in the monastery was people learning how to open up this territory of the the kind of stuff that we're bringing into the present moment and bring more sophisticated skills to allow it to... Come into conscious awareness and release skillfully, so that we're not um, constantly repeating um, patterns that were set up in in the past. What's the name of the book, please? There's two. One is called "Waking the Tiger," and that's a book for adults. And the book that I'm reading is called "Trauma Through the Eyes of a Child," and it's brilliant. Because it talks in very um, clear ways, the kinds of ways that children can be traumatized and then how one can actually um, bring skillful means to help them resolve that. Without, you don't need to have, um, it's not a psychotherapeutic basis. It's not based on your psychological, um, the effect that it has psychologically. It's based on understanding the, the body chemistries that are have been activated and what's needed in order for the body to release the the, um, the stored activated energy, and then because it's talking about through the eyes of the child, it really gives a very graphic picture of things which would seem like they shouldn't be a big deal, but actually from the child's perspective were horrendous. And you know, and when things like that happen, which are horrendous, um, the kind of effect that it can have. So, I mean, there's many examples in there that are just very telling, very, very telling. But uh, I find it interesting because there's an awful lot of people who are interested in meditation um, as a kind of general way of dealing with all kinds of things which actually don't respond best with meditation. And to become skillful with meditation is to begin to learn what the meditation supports and what other tools are needed to support other parts of one's mind and body process. What's your sense of virtue? What's your sense of precepts? How do you hold them? How does it work for you? just
3: look <laughs> to you.
2: <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> little pictures of you as magnets for refrigerators <laughs> I um, I had to write a paper on Sila and I completely while you were talking I was like what did I write you know I can't remember what I wrote but just um, so when you asked that question I thought constant failure just feeling like I've taken precepts formally several times and constantly falling short of, of you know, being perfect and um, was crying a little bit when you started talking about um, harming oneself, that that's part of it, um, because I constantly forget that. I'm always looking at how I'm treating others. So, and I really, really appreciate you talking about relationship because um, a lot of times on this path, my um, idea of taking up ropes and going into a monastery was a way of escaping relationship. You know, and really being um, clear about that. Every time I would think about it, I would talk to my teacher again and he would say, you know, okay, well, someday, but for you, relationship. In community, um, and how uh, my trauma and my attachment wounds um, are constantly uh, being challenged, and how um, I was thinking when when you were sharing about talking and not seeing um, not seeing the effect of the conversation on the other person. Um, took a long time for me to see that because I wasn't I wasn't taught that my mother didn't reflect to me in a healthy way how to interact Mm -hmm. so I've had to learn that as an adult Mm -hmm. and how painful that is when it seems like it seems like and I know it's not the truth but it seems like everybody else knows what they're doing and I know that that's a lie Mm -hmm. but um Yeah, navigating with that and really understanding that I need a sangha, I need spiritual friends that are on the same path to mirror this back to me. Mm -hmm. Because I I get lost Mm -hmm. and I forget myself. Mm -hmm. So, I just thank you again Mm -hmm. for coming and speaking to me.
0: One of the friends who visits at the meditation group in Colorado Springs, he's absolutely committed to the 12-step program and for him that's been just a huge opening to understand that there's something quite a bit bigger than the kind of immediacy of his own little sphere. But one of the things that he says repeatedly which I really love is, is, is that you know we're interested in progress not perfection. You know and so that, that that need for perfection is still part of the old patterning which is speaking and that's not a voice to listen to and so part of what is is needed in this journey because it's humbling for all of us there's nobody who keeps the precepts perfectly is the the, phenomenal level of compassion to actually touch the level of pain from which our unskillfulness is coming from you know when we're feeling balanced and centered and grounded that's not the place where we lose it (laughs) And actually to to get a sense of all of the causes and conditions that are around the pain, it touches just an an enormous um, need for the phenomenal level of, of respect and compassion for oneself for the journey that one's undertaking. And that's part of the reason why Sangha is so important because that's actually what people can mirror for each other to support that?
3: For some reason, pain has been on my mind since he started talking the concept of pain. Mm-hmm. So what keeps coming up for me is um, actually self-inflicted pain in, in ways. Um, for me, like I woke up this morning I'm really sore from working out last night doing a really, you know, exhaustive um, exercise, biking, martial arts. Um, and wanting to avoid that pain by taking ibuprofen and saying, oh, you know, I want to shut this pain out. Pain has a message behind it. And I'm also thinking of other ways that we cause pain to ourselves that, you know, from, from the external perspective, can be seen as damaging as or harmful. And I'm looking at the room and at all the, the art on people's bodies, and there's a sense of pain in that. Um, you know, one of Kate's roommates ha- has a, a method of self inflicting pain. It's, in a sense, for him, possibly a way of waking up. Um, and I'm also thinking of it as a therapist of, of clients who cut themselves. as a sense of feeling alive and awake. And I'm just wondering how... I guess for me, the reason I haven't spoken so far is I, I'm having difficulty formulating a question. With this, and how do we work with pain in a way that's. Yeah, we're, we're beneficial for our. our well, Even the practice of fasting is a sense of self inflicted pain.
0: I think with a lot of these things, it actually comes. You know, they, none of these topics are simple, it's not <laughs> like there's a magic answer you know and a lot of it has to do with one's intention um, and in working with other people you start with them where they're at and and see if through bringing another person who's present and non-judgmental yet sometimes another person present and non-judgmental can help unravel something to come to a to a to a to a level of congruence with their own values, which might make them see different choices than the ones that they would be inclined to make. As an example of that, I knew this couple. They were remarkable people. The woman, she was told she had three months to live. And being a kind of far-out person, she went on top of the roof and said, well, what am I supposed to do? And the, the guidance that she got was to adopt... Abused kids and walk across the country, okay? And she got to the other side of the country, and this incurable terminal disease was gone. And so she started working with kids, and the stories of these kids, oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness. I mean, each one was more horrific than the next one. And when I went and visited her, they had 16 kids in the house that they'd adopted, okay? And so it was like, you know, popcorn, you know, they were you know, with knives and chaos and threats. And I was like, oh, my goodness. And she had this kind of radar system where she would figure out which one was actually the most serious, and she'd go there, and she'd grab them. She'd grab them, and she'd hold them close to her heart, and and she'd sit with them. There was never a sense of making them wrong. Never. Making them wrong or making the activity that they were wanting to engage in wrong, but she just held them close to her heart long enough so that they could begin to feel the complex emotional reaction that they were engaging in, the pain that was underneath it, and to begin to bring it back to something that was more congruent with their values that they actually had. So there was nothing wrong with wanting to murder somebody, but it wasn't okay to do it. Okay? And so... And then with that murderous rage, you know, that they could touch the, the huge, whatever, hurt or betrayal or grief or something that they didn't have the capacity by themselves to navigate. And so watching her was just, it was like, um, I don't have a language to describe it. But these children who were absolutely impossible I mean, nobody could handle them. They were living together in a way which was actually very peaceful and and growing into people who were flourishing. Okay? And so in a way, it seems to me like each of us has got to find the way to be able to hold both of those positions. Her, which is able to grab you and hold you close to her chest. And the one that's screaming to actually be... Congruent with that pain not disconnect or disassociate from it but to hold both of those positions until the pain begins to come back into what's actually underneath it and that underneath it then brings us back into our own authentic congruent sense of how do we actually want to respond to this which is in accordance with our deepest values so when you talk about the various things that you shared that's what comes for me And so, you know, most people don't have the resources themselves to do that. So that's what we need to do with each other. It's like grab you, hold you close to your heart, and help um, step down the whole thing until you come back to that place of, well, what's underneath this? Now, I have never met anybody who's got this skill like she had, you know, on that level. But there are ways in which we can hold space for each other where we're not... We're not condoning. We're not denying. We're not bullshitting. We're just clear, and that clarity and that love is actually something which um, takes one back to a place which is something that's easier to be present with and to live with the consequences. I mean, I've shared in other contexts for myself the sense that you know it just it never ceases to amaze me sometimes the way that. I can get knocked into a regressed state and be dealing with something that is like, you know, over the consciousness of a two-year-old or a three-year-old with the inability to articulate and to negotiate the territory of a very, very young child. And if I had the image, well, I've been meditating for 30 years and I should be able to figure this out as my prevailing attitude, I can be in that space for a very long time because that is not a helpful space or attitude to have. But if I, if I get with the program that what I'm actually dealing with is actually something that's very young and needs the kind of loving and nourishment of what a, a very young child would need, then I can move with that and work at that in a way where you know you can do things that are age-appropriate for somebody who's two or three. And when I'm relating age-appropriate to something that I'm experiencing, it shifts very, very quickly once it shifts and then I can actually bring it in conscious awareness what I'm dealing with then I have the skills from my adult self from my, my practice life to bring to what what is with. but what often happens in those kinds of situations is, is there's something that gets activated and we're back in a trauma response and you can't respond to trauma with good ideas you know you actually need to actually be present with trauma from where it's actually happening and then backstep it into something that is able to hold the whole thing. So, you know, part of my skill has been to be able to be responsive. You know, one moment I'm this way, and the next moment I'm two. And it's like you walk around the corner, and who knows what I get around the corner, you know? But not to presume that I am a fixed person with this amount of whatever as my identity that I bring to whatever it is that I'm experiencing. And not having that as a fixed idea has made that my skill level has increased uh, really significantly. Is that enough for anything?
2: Yeah.
0: Or are you have to talk more? It's up to you. It's still good energy. You guys can decide. I was just
2: going to say, that I struggle um, a lot with trying to find my original life. Because I don't really know who I am. I don't think. You know, it's like I, um, I think through majority of my life i have always um, taken a lot of value what other people said, or you know what they thought was right or what they thought was wrong, and I'm struggling with trying to find what it is that I think. You know what I value. I know what I value. I know who I am. As you know. I have a good idea I know what I value and who I'm I'm not a hard time explaining this but um, (laughs) I've just been having a really hard time finding um, on just how do I really how can I let go of all these things that have been preconditioned and within myself you know that aren't necessarily from myself Um,
0: It makes a lot of sense, and it's a very important question because all of us come from conditioning, and nobody here probably has parents who are Buddhas, you know? And so the conditioning that you got was a mixture of their skillful and unskillful conditioning, and that's your parents, and then there's the society, and then there's the school, and then there's the family. And so, you know, we've got quite a lot of stuff, and some of it is healthy, and a lot of it isn't healthy. And so, you know, we're in the process of trying to figure out, well, what's what? But I think the same question is 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 that what we need to do is to have a basis from which we're actually evaluating. And that basis is not an idea. It's not a concept of how it's supposed to look like. It's a felt sense of what it feels like when it flows, when it's in balance, when it's relaxed, when it's spacious, when it feels right. What does that feel like? And so, you know, ideas come, you know, you should be or you shouldn't be, you should wear this, you shouldn't wear that, you should have tattoos, you shouldn't have t- tattoos, you know. It's like, well, how do I feel about that? So you've got a somatic um, feedback mechanism that gives you a sense of, well, what does ease and well-being feel like and what does lack of ease and well-being feel like? And that, for me, has been something that I've used to navigate through this Morass of complexity. You know, what belongs, what doesn't belong, what is authentic, what is just conditioned. You can't sort it out as an intellectual exercise. And the more you try, the more frustrated you'll get. You have to come back into just present moment, right now. What do you feel? You know, are you sitting in your body? Do you feel your feet? Do you feel the pressure underneath your sit bones? Are you tight? Can you relax into the titans? Can you soften around the contractions? Can you soften around grasping for wanting things? Right there is the space from which all of those things become resolved. You know, in that, in the presence, clarity, and knowing of the present moment, as we inhabit our body.
2: It makes a lot of sense. It'll definitely, you know, it makes sense to me. Yeah. Because I, sometimes I used to think, oh, well, that's just a feeling, <laughs> and just blow it off. You know, as a feeling, I'm always trying to intellectually figure things out. You know, I I sometimes like to dismiss and say that's just a feeling, I don't know if that, you know, so it's actually a relief, because if I go about my feelings, it's usually right, and I feel it, It's much easier. It's not so stressful. It's no. not so overwhelming, and it's not, no. it doesn't drive me nuts. No. That's, that's right. That's right. <laughs> that's right. There
1: is sort of a pervasive, like, uh, thing in society that I think that in, the intellect is better than everything else, and so if you're not intellectualizing it, you're probably doing it wrong. And you know, some people are proud of the fact that oh, I don't have any emotions, I intellectualize everything. And, and I used to be like that, <laughs> and I probably still I am. Mean, I analyze things a lot, and I write a lot of stuff down and, and everything, but uh, I've, it's it's helped me a lot to, to trust those students, you know, to trust the, the sense of. In your body, like you're talking about, when you when you can feel something coming from your heart and radiating, you know that's that you're on the right track.
0: Yeah, and you can also feel tension. You know, you know tension, and you know the absence of tension. You know. So.
2: Yeah. Sorry, stop.
1: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit